Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and it's good to be with you today on this Mother's Day. Uh, so happy Mother's Day to all those who are out there who are mothers today, and uh, for those who are missing their mothers or can't be with their mothers because of the plague. It's a, a very different kind of Mother's Day. I remember as a child that we would go out. We had a, a bush, a rose bush kind of a thing. It was more like a vine, actually. They, they kind of hugged a fence in our backyard, and so we would go out that in the morning of Mother's Day and then go and get our little red roses, and we would put those in the lapels of our coat when we were children, and we would wear them to church because we honored our mothers by putting a red rose on because mom was alive. <clears throat> so those whose mothers had already gone on before, and um, they would wear white roses. And so the um, church would, would be adorned with all these people wearing roses, either red or white. And so I don't know that people do that anymore. I haven't seen that uh, in a long, long time. So I'm just not sure whether they still do that or not. But anyway, mothers are incredibly important to us. And so uh, I want to give a shout out to all the moms out there. If you're familiar with me, if you've ever gone to churches that I pastored, what you'll know is I don't actually do Mother's Day sermons. I just feel like we only have a certain number of opportunities to preach the gospel. And, and mothers are incredibly important. My mother certainly is incredibly important to me today. And um, she's very foundational in us being in church and growing up hearing the gospel. And so that's incredibly important. And so I do value mothers greatly, but I value the gospel more. <laughs> uh, there, there's just so much passion in me for the word of God, for Jesus the incarnate word of God. And so I'm going to stick with it today. I'm not going to be sidetracked by that holiday, even though I think it's a valuable one. So what we are here, we are in the fifth Sunday after Easter. We're only a couple of weeks away from Pentecost, which seems incredible uh, to me that that's even possible. It's been such a bizarre last couple of months. Hopefully we're coming towards the end of that. We'll be into to be able to, to do things in a more normal way and put a rhythm back into our lives that's been missing since we've not been able to worship together. So today, I want to talk about the lessons we have in the uh, Book of Common Prayer for the day. And it begins with Psalm 66, 1 through 8, and then Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25, 1 Peter 2, 1 to 10, and the Gospel is John 14. 1 to 14, and I want to read the prayer of the day, which we call a collect, because it collects the prayers of all God's peoples based on the lessons. So the collect is this, O Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know thy Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leadeth to eternal life through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So <clears throat> the, the obvious point of that collect and, and that all the lessons point to today is, is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which is exactly what he says in John 14, 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a powerful statement that Jesus makes there. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. 
And then, even more dramatically, I think, is that second thing. If you had known me, you would have known my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. So seeing Jesus is the same as seeing the Father. That's what he's saying here. That's the point of that, that he and the Father are one and the same. If you have seen him, then you have seen the Father as well. And it's a powerful, powerful statement of his, of his identity to correlate himself so perfectly with the Father. And he invites us to believe that truth in order that we would have eternal life. The disciples even are, are baffled by this whole thing. Jesus, prior to that, had talked about going away, going to his father's house where there are many rooms. He goes there to prepare a place for us. And then if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas just, he, he is completely confused by this. Look, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And even after that powerful statement, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's asking a lot. That's truly a big ask. In retrospect, not so much, but at the time, these guys are as confused as Nicodemus was when he first met Jesus and Jesus talked to him about being born again. It, it's confusing, to say the least. But the resurrection makes all that easier. Because Jesus coming back from the dead, the only one who has returned from the dead, allows us to believe in a different way. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness to us about who Jesus is. And so... When he says it on this day, though, these guys are completely confused. I'm, he's going somewhere? Where is he going? What do you mean? His father's house has many rooms. He's going to go prepare a place for us. And I can remember my Greek and New Testament professor, Philip Comfort, telling a story one time. We asked him something about what was the weirdest sermon he had ever heard. And he said, well, it was clearly in his mind one where a guy preached on this whole idea that I go to prepare a place for you. And that is the reason that God sent Jesus to become a carpenter so he could go and prepare those mansions and those rooms for us. No, absolutely not. What this is actually, this that what Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, refers actually to marriage. It, it's the bridegroom in that tradition, in that time, that's exactly what the bridegroom did. You know, Jesus tells multiple parables that have to do with weddings. And, and the, the, they would be invited to a feast. And then the people who were invited at the last minute would come up with excuses and wouldn't be able to attend the feast. Or they would just ignore the invitation to the feast in, in at least one of the parables. And so the, the problem is, is that what happened was is that, that 
a servant or the uh, parents would invite other people to a wedding. And so the bride and groom would be betrothed to one another for some sort of indefinite-ish period of time. And there would be some shorter notice given about when the wedding was. Nobody would say, well, it'll be on June the 15th. No, because they couldn't actually say that because the responsibility that the bridegroom had towards his bride, towards his intended, was to prepare a place for the bride. And that place was an addition to the house of his father. And then when he was finished with that addition, that room, then the wedding would take place because they had a place to be in the father's house. So when Jesus says this about in my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's a wedding is what he's talking about. That he is going away for a period of time and in his father's house has many rooms, not just 11 rooms, but many rooms. And he goes to prepare a place for them, for us, as a groom would for the bride. That's the language Jesus is using there. That's the metaphor that he's using in that particular instance. It's a powerful, wonderful um, metaphor of, of his great love for his people, for his disciples, for others. He didn't say, I go to prepare a place for everybody. No, he goes and prepares a place for his bride, for his church, for those who are called by his name. The ones that Peter says are the chosen ones. Those are the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And what's the point of that, Peter says? And that is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. That's what Peter says in that passage that we're looking at today. And that last part, well, the first part, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what God told the Israelites their identity was. And now that's been given to us as well. And it's important that then he says, you were once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you now you have received mercy. And that's all language from the book of Hosea. Hosea named his children those kinds of things. Not loved. No mercy. Jesus accomplished for us in his sacrifice and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit to his chosen people, he accomplished what had to be accomplished through circumcision and sacrifices of animals prior to that. Jesus provides the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, but he does so in order to prepare a place, not just for those there that day, but for those who, through the witness and the testimony of those who were there that day, will also know and love him and have a place in his kingdom adopted into the family through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of the older brother so that we might have eternal life. And so that's what Peter's saying. We were not a people before that, but, and, and, but now we're God's people. In other words, you were nobodies. You were meaningless prior to this, but now you're God's people, and once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But it's 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One of the things that sometimes we, we skip over, I think, when we read, we, we can be intrigued by what's being said, and then we can forget the most important thing in this. What's the meaning of all that? We can know all kinds of things without being wise because we don't know the meaning. And in that Deuteronomy passage we have for today, it begins with, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And then the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it'll be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So does that sound like a statement of meaning? What's the meaning of all these things? Well, God did all this. That is legitimately the meaning of that. What was the meaning of these commandments and statutes? Well, the meaning rests in the one who gave those commandments and statutes. He was the one who did all these things for us, and therefore the meaning is found in him, the one who gave us the commandments. And he said these things, if we do, if we fear the Lord and we obey his commandments, then that will be righteousness for us. So the meaning is righteousness, is those commandments, the, the, the keeping of the law of the one who has saved you. And in that lesson from First Peter today, Peter gives that same basic answer. He tells them to put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander. You wouldn't think somebody would have to tell you to put away those things, would you? But you, it does have to be told. And then he tells about who we're supposed to be. We're to be living stones built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes it and will not be put to shame. He's quoting the Old Testament. So the honor is for you who will believe. But for those who do not believe, he says, the builders that rejected, the stone the builders have rejected, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That image is an interesting image. And it goes back to this whole idea of obedience. And it goes back to what Jesus says are the two main commandments. And that's to love the Lord your God with everything within you and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that hasn't passed away. But if Jesus didn't begin that, he showed us how truly to love another as ourself would look like. It is putting that other in the place of our own self, being willing to lay down one's life for your friends. He says, there's no greater love than that. And then he did it. But, but what does all this stuff mean? What does this deal with the, the Peter's focused constantly? He quotes that passage about the chief cornerstone. He likes that passage a lot. It's an important thing. And I believe that it goes back when he was given the name Peter, because remember that was not his name. He was Simon. Jesus gives him the name Petra, rock, on which he'll build his church. And it's not Peter 
who is a rock, we see him later collapsing under pressure. We see at the, the night of the before the crucifixion, we see him also having to be confronted by Paul because he was he was weak on the inclusion of the Gentiles whenever he was with the Jews. So it can't be Peter, literally. It's got to be something else. It's, it's the word that Peter proclaimed there that Jesus, who Jesus was, his identity. And then Jesus goes on after that to tell that little parable about building your house on a rock. And so we're called to build our house on a rock. And Peter knows that the most important thing with building that house is the foundation on which it's laid. And so the chief cornerstone is the most important selection that you can make in the building of a home in that way. That cornerstone has to hold up everything. It's got to support the entire structure. If you don't trust in and believe in that cornerstone, don't use it. But if you do trust and believe that that stone can withstand the years, the pressure, and the weight of the rest of the structure, then you build on that cornerstone. And so choosing the right cornerstone is the most important thing in building a building, and Peter says in building a life, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone on which life will be built. Choosing a partner for life is an important thing. It, it sets the tone and the pace and the strength of the structure. It depends completely on that cornerstone, and, and Peter says Jesus is that stone, but then he says that's for you who believe. For those who don't believe, He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That stone of stumbling, the word for that in Greek is scandalon. You probably heard it when I said it. Scandal on. So it's a scandal. And the scandal is even scandalous in that gospel lesson to the disciples. Basically, Thomas's question of we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Philip's question of, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us, actually shows something of the scandal. Because neither of them are prepared at that moment to go that far with Jesus. It was a great scandal. It, the scandal of Jesus' identity, he claimed equality with the Father, is the scandal of offense that gets him on the cross. The stumbling stone is the scandal on. And that's the where that word comes from. It's also the trip trigger on a, on a trap. It's the stick that you step on that makes the trap go. So it's, it's a dangerous thing. It, it will trip you up. It's literally the stone that would trip you up as you walk along the pathway. I used to do a lot of hiking and I can't tell you how many times I've stumbled over stones in the path. But it's even more interesting if you know exactly where that came from the very first time it's mentioned in the Bible, this idea of a stumbling stone. And it comes within the context of God telling them, his people in Leviticus 19, how to love one another as they love themselves. And he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of the harvest. And don't strip your vineyard bare. 
or gather of the fallen grapes in the vineyard. Leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another again. Like that beginning of, of Peter's passage there when he tells them to put away hypocrisy, malice, and slander. Don't swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of, the, of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf who can't hear you or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Who would have to tell somebody, don't curse deaf people who can't hear you and don't put a stumbling block before the blind? Why would God have to tell his people not to do the most horrible things that you can actually imagine, right? I mean, all the things that, that you've heard, don't steal, don't deal falsely, don't lie to one another. So, but God had to tell people, don't put a stumbling block, a scandal on before the blind. We're capable of anything. But that's the way in which Jesus is the scandal on it. It's an interesting thing because what they claimed, what the Pharisees particularly claimed, was that they saw things more clearly than other people, and that allowed them to have greater righteousness than other people. And that's why Jesus tells them, you've got to remove the log from your own eye before you can pull the splinter out of your brother's eye. Understand and see the truth, see your own sin, see your own need of a Savior, and see me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is not claiming to say, no, this is hidden, you're blind, you cannot see, and therefore you stumble over me. No, those who claim to see, those who claim to know, are the ones who stumbled, the ones who insisted that he be crucified. When Peter speaks of Jesus as the chief cornerstone, that's the important thing for us as Christians is to build on that cornerstone. To put him first, to say that whatever he says, whatever he did, whatever he commanded us to do, that will I do. If he commanded me not to do something, then I will not do that. So it's important that we follow his commandments. It's important that we make him the chief cornerstone. I'm going to tell you a quick one. This will take a couple of minutes, just so you'll know. There's an uh, important concept in Judaism that relates to this idea of Jesus being the chief cornerstone, but it also relates to something in Revelation about the proclamation that Jesus was slain for the foundation of the world. And the world, everything, is built on the gospel. Always has been. Here's the story. Here's a little piece of the story because it's a gigantic story. The foundation stone is in the Temple Mount. It's literally that the, the Jews will say that it is the navel of the world, that um, Israel is at the center of the world and Jerusalem is at the center of Israel. And at the center of Jerusalem is the temple. And at the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies and underneath the Holy of where the ark rests underneath that is the foundation stone. 
and God built the world, as it were, on that foundation. Now, the sages of, the, of Judaism have some ideas about that. It's not literally the stone from which everything else was created. Nope, it wasn't always, in fact, even where it is. It was moved to that place, but it's also a miraculous stone. It's the stone where Adam was first. It's the stone on which uh, Abraham made sacrifices. It's a place where Noah's ark was. So, but beyond that, it's the stone on which Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. One of the greatest mysteries, I think, of Judaism for most people, and if you want to know more about it, read Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling. And he's trying to get his head and hands around it, and he has to look at it from multiple uh, perspectives in order to do it, because he recognizes it's very difficult. There's no straightforward way to figure out why Abraham would do this. Why would God ask this of Abraham? What happens here? What's the meaning of that? The meaning of it awaits the revelation of Jesus when God didn't spare his own son, but sacrificed him for us. It's that stone, and then later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, as he goes running away from his brother Esau. Remember, he's in a field and it gets dark and he's alone. He's out there completely by himself and he makes a pillar with 12 stones. And what they believe is, is that that stone became one stone and it was the stone that was under his head, the stone on which he slept. That God brought together the 12 into the one to make that stone. But it was brought from the stones of that place, is what it says in Genesis 28, into that place. And from that spot, from where that stone was, is where the temple was built. But that stone was the stone on which Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so the culmination of the sacrifices on Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, was when the high priest took the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and threw it upon the Ark of the Covenant, which rests on the foundation stone. So the two tables of the law are in there. Moses' staff that budded some of the manna are in that place. And what is that place? Literally, it's God's resting place it's his footstool judgment happens in the heavens and then it's carried out on the earth and that place that law has to be propitiated sin has to be propitiated for by throwing the blood of the sacrifice on the law and so long as god accepts that sacrifice that high priest returns and the judas goat is cast into the wilderness and doesn't return, then the people know that they have forgiveness of their sins right there on the foundation stone. So the foundation stone where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac, and, the, and he said the Lord will provide the sacrifice, is the stone on which the Ark of the Covenant rests, where which, where which propitiation is made 
for the sins of the people. It's the western wall of the temple, and that's the reason that that's the wailing wall, because it's believed that the prayers of the people go of all the people of earth go up from that place, that foundation stone, up to heaven. And that's because of Jacob's vision in the ladder, remember, on which the angels went up and down, ascended and descended. Jesus is our foundation stone in no less the same way. It's a powerful thing that God provided all this in advance through the Old Testament, through the sages. You can see all of this points to Jesus, points to his sacrifice. And you know with certainty, not because some, someone goes in and makes propitiation on a, on a yearly basis for us, but his sacrifice once offered was acceptable to God because remember what happened that day. Matthew tells us the curtain, the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn. Everything was open because Jesus said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, he meant everything. Everything was finished. There was no further work to be done for the salvation of God's people. It's our joy then, as Peter says, to go out and proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us, who has made us a people and has shown us mercy. His name is wonderful. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding today. My name is John Green. You can find us on Facebook by looking up Faith Seeking Understanding. And if you have any prayer requests, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, please go to the Faith Seeking Understanding uh, Facebook page and leave them there. God bless, and I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week.